Inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. For Radio Cade, I'm James DiVirgilio. My guest today is Daniel Bruce. He is the CEO and co-founder of Slice Engineering. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, it says on your website and elsewhere that what you do is you supercharge 3D printer technology. What does that actually mean? We're a manufacturer. We design and manufacture components for 3D printers. Your PC has an Intel sticker on it, more than likely. Intel makes the chip that goes inside of your computer, your your PC. So we're doing similar things for 3D printers. We're making components for 3D printers, specifically ones that help to improve the performance, either with higher temperature materials or more capable engineering grade materials or allow you to print faster, better resolution, things like that. Let's talk about 3D printers for a second. Sure. This is a topic that confuses and confounds me because when I think of 3D printer, I still think of like trying to print something out and out comes a sheet of paper with things on it. Right. It's called a printer, but what really is a 3D printer? What is it capable of? Is the sky the limit here? I mean, what is this device that you're improving? So one of the cool things about 3D printing is that you mentioned limits. Essentially, the limit is sort of your imagination. Anything you can design on a computer with CAD, you can pretty much 3D print and turn into a physical object. So that's really the appeal, especially for like a DIY consumer type person. They maybe have an idea of, oh, I want to create a new product or I want to just make a bracket for something in my garage. If you can think of it and design it in a computer, you can hold the real object in your hand within a few hours. So that's pretty amazing. In terms of what it is, if you imagine plastic being on a spool, like a spool of thread, and then that plastic being fed through a hot glue gun, the hot glue gun would melt the plastic and then squirt it out onto what's called the build plate or like a sheet of paper, basically, where the object is being created. And instead of doing it in two dimensions, it builds it in three. So the build plate goes down or the hot glue gun, it's called the hot end, goes up and builds layer upon layer until you come out with a 3D object at the end. So if I want to print a bumper for a car, mm-hmm. this can be done. Of that course can be I done. Yeah. And how to slice improve my 3D printing of a car's bumper? Sure. So we could allow you to print out of a better material, for example. So if you, like the water bottles that are sitting in front of us, those are made of a plastic called PETG. If you wanted to print a PETG bumper, it's a lower temperature plastic. It's kind of easy to do. It's not the best material for your bumper. If you run into somebody else with your PETG bumper, it's not going to survive the impact. So you want to use a higher temperature and engineering grade plastic that can survive the impact. So you could print it. Can you 3D print metal objects? Yes, with an asterisk. So we can print metals that are embedded into a plastic carrier. So if you imagine metal as a pure metal in a fine particle form being embedded into that same spool of plastic, that plastic thread, and you could print that plastic thread and then put your final object into what's called a sintering oven. And what it does is it evaporates the plastic and leaves behind the metal that was printed. So you do have a metal object at the end, but you're not directly manipulating metal, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And let's talk about how we got to this point of your story. 
Obviously, you're an expert in 3D printing. Your company helps to assist and supercharge these processes. Once upon a time, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. So you went to school at UF. I did, yeah. Got a degree in mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. And then what happened from there? Did a couple internships in different types of industries. I worked in aerospace for a little bit. I worked in power generation for a little bit. But I was doing a bunch of research in biomechanics at UF while I was an undergrad. And I decided from those disparate experiences, I was going to try and pursue something in the medical arena because I wanted to make an impact and help people. So I ended up staying in Gainesville. I worked for Progress Park, if you're familiar with the area. RTI Surgical is up there as well as Oxygen. So I worked for both of those companies for about six years. And during that experience, I ran into or I met the gentleman who became my co-founder. His name is Chris Montgomery. And his family has been in the area for a really long time. We basically encountered some problems with 3D printing. We were using it at work and we encountered some problems that we couldn't solve or nobody that we talked to could solve. So Chris said, well, I bet you I could figure out a way to fix this. And uh, we went back to his garage and he came up with a great idea that we then launched into a company. So had you done extensive research to see if anyone else had solved this problem already and come to the point to where definitively there was no solution? Yeah, we had phone calls with companies in Germany, the UK, had email traffic going back and forth with people all over the world to try and find somebody to solve this problem. And no one could. So then you decide to solve it, create a prototype in the garage, Mm -hmm. take the prototype where? So we built the first prototypes in the garage. And then there was a local company here, the little machine shop that built six of them for us so we could test more. And then we found a manufacturer here in the U.S. that built the first pre-production ones. We built like 40-ish of them and went to a trade show, sold out in a couple hours. So we were like, okay, validated the, the concept that there was a need for this, that it wasn't just us that recognized, hey, we have this weird problem that nobody else does. This is a real problem that other people have as well. And so at this trade show, you weren't necessarily sure how many people were going to have this problem. And unbeknownst to you, they're saying, oh, this is the exact solution that I need. Yeah. Now, from there, did you take on investor funding? Is this a self-funded company? How did you wind up financing the next level of production for these pieces? It's all been bootstrapped so far. So myself, Chris, who I mentioned, and we have a third partner, and three of us have basically funded it from our, our savings and revenue coming in. And how old is Slice now? We launched, I guess, publicly in March 2018, so just a little over a year and a half. And you're in multiple countries, correct? We are, yeah. We have distributors in 12 countries, I believe. What does it look like in the next five years for Slice? What problems are you trying to solve? Are you at the curve where you're trying to say we need to continue to produce this prototype or what we have? Or are you at a next level already saying we can do this and now make this that much better? Where are you in that curve? So we've already launched a second generation version of the first product that we built. The first one we launched was sort of like our flagship model, and we've built a less expensive version that's more targeted at a desktop market as opposed to an industrial market. We just had a successful Kickstarter campaign for that that finished up on the 1st of January of this year. And we're continuing to look at the future for other future product developments. There's multiple types of 3D printing, and we're in one right now. So we've been focused on that, and we will have more innovations coming out this year and in the following years in that realm. But we're also looking at other types of 3D printing and how can we expand into those in a way that is value-added, right, where we're coming up with a new innovation in the market that nobody else is doing. And how does Slice get its customers? Are you actively marketing? Do they find you because it's this niche situation where they need to solve this problem? How does that happen? So we do a lot of trade shows, and that's the way we get mostly our industrial customers is through trade shows. 
but we're also doing marketing. We run Facebook and Google ads. We reach out to people that we find on forums. We've established an online presence that allows us to extend our reach. And that's probably the biggest struggle in growing a business of any kind is how do you expand your customer base? And so that's something we ask ourselves every single day. <laughs> and your customer is really anyone who's using a 3D printer. It's not just a large industrial operation. If you're at home printing things and you need to solve this problem or have this certain capability, your product solves that. Yep, absolutely, yeah. So we have customers that have a $800 small 3D printer in their garage, and then we also have customers that have a massive operation, a room, an array of 3D printers that are printing either prototype parts or even production parts for a specific application. Okay, now so far your story seems exceptionally smooth. An idea, <laughs> start a company, get a prototype, go to a yeah. trade show, sell out. Have there been any difficult moments in the journey of Slice? I think everything looks smooth from the outside looking in always. It's easy to look at an entrepreneur Ford and say, oh, his journey was smooth. He started with the Model A and everything was great and boom, Model T, and now it's a 300-something billion dollar company. But the reality is it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of sleepless nights for the first half of Slice's existence. I was working two jobs. So I was working on Slice nights and weekends. And during the day, I had my nine to five normal engineering job. And that takes a toll. That's hard. That's not easy when everybody else is like, hey, let's go out and have a good time. And you're like, I haven't seen my friends in a month, but I'm going to keep working. There's a lot of personal sacrifices there. My wife is extremely understanding and wonderful. I have a son now, so he's too young to quite understand yet what's going on. But someday there will be a story of like, hey, I worked a lot of hours before you were born so that I could hopefully work fewer once he's able to understand and I can be home on time. What's the hardest part about being a co-founder? So your organization has several people in it. Mm -hmm. There's benefits. I know, in fact, we're going to talk later about some teamwork. But what's the hardest thing about being a co-founder? There's a lot of front-loaded work in the sense that you need to pick the right person to be a co-founder. If you're not going to do something on your own, you need to find the right team. I have this bowling pin in my office that is for winning a bowling tournament. I'm a terrible bowler. But I picked the right people to be on my team because I knew if I picked these guys, I could win the tournament. And so we picked the right people and we won. So I've got that in my office to remind me every day that if I pick the right people, even if I'm not the best at something, if I was trying to be the best at everything, I'd probably be not good at anything. So picking the right people to be on your team is, is huge. And then maintaining the relationship. A partnership is like a marriage. You've got to have a conversation. You've got to talk. You've got to make sure you're on the same page. Spend time together that isn't just, hey, we need to get these 10 tasks done. But also remember that they're a person. They have feelings. They have issues that they're dealing with in their own life. And I think being cognizant of that goes a really long way towards making things smooth. Do you have any special guidelines as co-founders, like communication rules maybe, where we say, hey, look, if stuff is difficult, we're always going to make sure we talk about it first, or we're not going to let bitterness or resentment creep in. We're going to have conversations. Do you have any sort of overarching mission or philosophy for how we would communicate as co-founders? So you mentioned bitterness. That's a huge one, right? So if you let resentment, bitterness set, it causes a huge issue. So one of our ground rules is if we're offended at something, we have to, one, not communicate it via chat or text or something like that, but it has to be either a phone call or face-to-face -to -face and be able to say, hey, this ticked me off when you did this. Let's talk about it. Why did you do this? Maybe I'm being insensitive or maybe I just misunderstood what the other person said. That's common, right? 
so yeah, that's our main ground rule is like, you're not allowed to hold something over somebody's head and just not talk about it. You have to talk about it. So spill the beans all the time. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the main ground rule. Oh, that's very wise. Let's talk about your childhood. So you grew up or, or born in New Orleans mm-hmm. and then you went somewhere far, far away. Where was it that you went? My family moved to Siberia very far away. Very, very far away. How did you wind up in Siberia? I've been to Russia and even amongst the Russians, you don't really go to Siberia, but you in (laughs) fact grew up there. So my parents are missionaries. So they planted churches and started orphanages and drug rehab facilities in various places. They still do that now to this day. When I was a child, specifically, we were going to Siberia. There was a huge need after the Iron Curtain came down for services like that. There's a massive, even to this day, a drug and alcoholism problem in Russia and in Siberia in particular. So they went where the need was most. We spent about 10 years in a city called Irkutsk, which is near the deepest lake in the world called Lake Baikal, which is an absolutely stunning, beautiful place if you ever have the opportunity to go to the middle of nowhere in Siberia. (laughs) And what was it like as a child there? Did you have neighbors? Did you have a community of friends? What was it like growing up as an American deep in the heart of Russia? generally tried to not tell people you're an American. Uh, I had the benefit of having grown up there from an early age. I didn't have an accent, so I was able to communicate as if I was another Russian. My parents did not have the same benefit, so they kind of stood out quite a bit. Elementary and middle school kids are more vicious maybe than adults. I think when an adult Russian met an adult American in the early 90s, it was like, oh, this is such an amazing anomaly. This is cool. I want to have a conversation. Whereas a Russian kid was more like, you're my enemy. (laughs) So there were a lot of interesting adventures. I certainly made friends there. still have Russian friends. I went to Russian school for a while and that was complicated. I don't like bullies. Let's just say that. Are there any experiences from your time in Siberia that you feel have positively impacted who you are today? Absolutely. I think growing up in another place, one, you get an appreciation for what we have here in the States. Everything from the fact that you can go to the store and there's always bread on the shelf to the fact that there are things like traffic rules that people obey. And if you get in an accident, if you've seen any Russian dash cam videos on YouTube, you sort of know what Russian roads are like. And it was worse in the 90s. There's a lot of things to be very, very thankful for. And I think having an attitude of thankfulness, no matter what the circumstances are, is something very positive that came out of that. And just having a cultural experience outside of one's own is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm sure that totally changed how you saw the world around you coming from there and then coming back to America. Now, putting your co-founder and CEO hat back on, what are some words of wisdom you could give to aspiring entrepreneurs or people that are early in the curve? Maybe this is they're in the first six months of their slice story. What are some words of wisdom? Again, going back to the team, find the right people to be on your team. It's very seldom that somebody says, okay, this was a solo journey. Maybe there's some situations of that, but generally it's always a team effort, right, to get something off the ground. Whether you've got the packaging guy who's shipping out orders, you can't do the job without him. And you want to make sure that your packaging guy is the right guy. So having the right people on your team is extremely critical, especially going back to the co-founder discussion. If you have the right co-founders, it can mean the world. And if you have the wrong ones, your business is probably going to fail. Having people that you can trust is a really big deal. And then I think the other part of it is just having the tenacity to keep going. Sometimes it feels like, okay, we didn't hit our targets for revenue or we didn't hit our targets for sales or like we're having some big issue with Amazon or any sort of those issues can shut down a business if not addressed properly and quickly. If you don't have the resilience to last through that, then you're not going to make it. 
I had lunch with a local entrepreneur here recently. He gave me a stat and he said 80% of businesses fail in the first year. And then of those 20% that survive, another three quarters of them fail within the first five years. What makes you think you're going to survive? I'm an optimist, maybe. <laughs> and he said, well, you're not only an optimist, you have to be a gladiator. So if you think about coming into the business realm as like, all right, I'm walking into the arena and no matter what the circumstances are, I'm going to walk out of here alive, Russell Crowe style. I think that changes your perspective of how you can survive. All right. One last question. I love the gladiator, by the way. Right, one, of my, yeah. one of my favorites. If you could go back to 2017, your current self could give one piece of advice to the Daniel in 2017, what would it be? Hmm. That's a great question. Only one, huh? Only one. There's so many things. <laughs> I think it would have to be around marketing and having a more complete marketing strategy going into it rather than we sort of figured things out as we went along. And I'm not sure that there's a great way to fully know your market when you're first starting off. But if there was a way to have a more complete marketing strategy from the get-go, I think that would have gone a really long way from getting the jumps in revenue that we have to maybe 5 or 10x that because of better marketing, getting the word out there. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. It was very enlightening to learn not only about 3D printing, but also Siberia and your story. Good words of wisdom for fellow entrepreneurs. Thanks for coming. Thanks, James, for having me. He is Daniel Bruce, the CEO and co-founder of Slice Engineering, and I am James DiBergilio, and for Radio Cade, signing off. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. This podcast episode's host was James DiVirgilio, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hartwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.